0: This is Pink Noise, and I am your host, Barry Sherry. In advance of settling in to listen to this conversation, I want to let you know that my guest today is an expert at shadow work with psychological trauma experience. She's going to explain how trauma lives in our body and why the key to healing is rooted in a self-love practice of acknowledging the wounded inner child who didn't get witnessed in their pain. I was amazed at the clarity of her explanations, even as she referenced her own experience with postpartum depression that followed the birth of her daughter. I met Katherine Liggett through my friend and previous guest, Jeff Gleisowitz, at one of her events called Intuitive Jam. It was a completely novel experience for me and I've been following her ever since. I am here to cheer her on with her mission to mobilize empaths. But let's start at the beginning. Thanks for coming on the show today, Catherine. My pleasure. I'd love to hear you describe how you do the work that you do.
1: Well, I used to think that I could help people heal. (laughs) I used to think um, that I could heal people in the same way that when I was starting out as a teacher, I thought that I could teach people things, but it turns out that neither of those are true. I can be myself. I can be on my own path. I can reflect back someone's experience to them, but I cannot teach them anything or make them heal. And so as I've grown on my path as someone who facilitates other people's healing. That's been a major shift for me. And I don't trust anyone anymore who claims to be able
0: to heal someone else. I love that you said facilitates other people's healing. Yeah, that really lands for me. What what I like most about the way that sounds, Catherine, is it sounds really respectful that We all have to do our own work to heal ourselves. And when we can find someone that we can build trust with and put our trust in, then we can show more of ourselves to them. And when we do that, it can be reflected back. And I think it's in that reflection that we better see and know ourselves. At least that's been my experience and certainly one of the big gifts of being in the authentic relating practice is time spent with others in exercises and activities and group work where you have a partner and you're uncovering something and then they're telling you what they see. How do you facilitate other people's healings? Are you willing to give an example of what that might look like?
1: So first of all, my you asked about my how I am, like how I'm being as a facilitator of other people's healing, and I would say that my highest intention whether it's in my work or my personal life is for other people to feel free in my presence. I spent the last 5 years working with people one-on-one facilitating shadow work journeys and more and more that's what I moved into was this idea of just showing up as myself and being a mirror for them. Not interpreting, not intruding with my own view of things, what was happening for them, but really making it my highest intention and practice to be so aware of my own bias that I carry and my own judgments and my own triggers that I could notice them arising in my mind and heart, put them on a shelf and just keep showing up as clearly and transparently as I can for someone. And it was in those moments that almost like magic people seem to have the hugest experiences or realizations and it wasn't me at all it was just that my presence because i've curated it to be this way was so transparent in a way i don't really know how else to put it it's so clear that something relaxed in them and they were able to go deeper within themselves and it's so important for us to remember we so often forget this especially in american culture but so important for us to remember that above all else we are relational beings and i'm sure you're 100% on board with this <laughs> connection is our greatest need the 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 greatest predictor of early death for someone is loneliness we know that from the research. So we're here for connection. And especially in the last year and some change, we're never going to take that for granted again. And I know that that's one of the gifts of this era to humanity is we know how important it is for us to connect with other people. And when that connection happens and and a vulnerable part of ourselves feels safe enough to come out, then we can really heal. So, so much healing happens in witnessing. One of my favorite quotes of all time is from the famous trauma expert, Peter Levine. And he says that trauma isn't what happens to us. It's what we hold inside in the absence of an empathic witness. So the human being is so often traumatized when there's no one there to connect with us when we're suffering. Like that's when something that could have just been a difficult incident in our lives becomes something like PTSD is when we were really alone or we were totally trapped. There wasn't anyone there to really help witness us and help us process the experience. That's a huge predictor of if someone develops PTSD symptoms from an incident or not. Yeah. So we, are, we are above anything else relational beings.
0: Yeah. And hearing that, I'm reminded of uh, a lesson I received from Dr. Susan Campbell, and I was listening to one of her talks. I've I've read many of her books, and she was a guest a few months ago on this program. She was talking about what makes a trigger a trigger. Like why is there a reaction that you have that seems involuntary? to something that is going on. And the way I understood her description is that it stemmed from a time in your childhood where you weren't seen in your pain. So a situation that was occurring and you had a a strong reaction to it, a painful reaction to it, and nobody saw you there. Nobody saw you hurting. There was no witness. And so this inner child work that I've seen other practitioners talk about, I keep following these two tracks. It's like, love yourself more and heal your inner child.
1: It's the same. It's the same? I can put it together for you. Oh, please
0: do. Please do.
1: So first of all, I really have to talk to your guest because... I don't often meet other people who talk about trauma in that way, that trauma is unseen pain. Because that's absolutely my experience. And it just gives us this window into how deeply traumatized we are as societies right now, because so many of us grew up, as we talked about, in this emotional neglect. And because we know that trauma is unseen pain, we know that If my emotions aren't being seen, understood, heard, right? I am being traumatized. And there are so often people who I've worked with or who I've known in my personal life who have no idea why they have so much anxiety, have no idea why they have suicidal ideation, have no idea why they are depressed. And when they experience my work, they finally find the answer to why. And it's something our society doesn't talk about and it's emotional neglect because it is a deep, deep trauma. And because we've been in an emotional dark age, we haven't recognized how deep it is and we are starting to.
0: I got chills all the way up my arm and down my back when you just said that. really starting to pay attention. I think I spent a large part of my life walking around as a disconnected head, not being aware of that my body was talking to me.
1: Well, that's what we do when we have trauma. It's called dissociation. And it's our brain's ingenious response to pain that isn't being seen, we just leave our bodies because the pain is in our body. And so if you're in your head all the time, you know that you're traumatized. And most of us are, and social media and technology just help keep us there because it's so mind oriented. It's extremely difficult for people with trauma histories to really sink into the body because there is so much unseen pain there. All of the childhood emotions that weren't seen, heard, understood, validated, live in our bodies. And a huge amount of what I do is inner child work. That's the heart of the shadow work that I practice. And the center of every shadow work journey as I facilitate it is a deep encounter with the inner child in a memory or a general sense of a certain age that was the root of an adult trigger. And so I guide the journey back and we work through the body, the body sensations that are present in the adult triggering moment. And we follow and trace that back earlier and earlier in life till we land in that root memory, usually in childhood. And then we switch gears and we become the empathic witness. We become the strongest version of ourselves looking at our child self. And we do deep validation work. We do the witnessing that didn't happen at that time and place. And often there's tons of tears at this point in any of these journeys as the person reflects back exactly what they see this younger self feeling. So I see you're all alone. I see you're hurt. I see you're so scared, et cetera. And this is the same thing as self-love. This is reparenting. Because what we're doing is we're being the parent, that empathic, validating, witnessing parent that our parents didn't know how to be. And so when we reparent ourselves, this is what I feel like the true definition of self-love is, is when we can hold ourselves lovingly, unconditionally witness ourselves, no matter what's happening in our bodies and minds. So just as I did in my postpartum experience where I arrived at, like no matter how frayed my nervous system was, no matter how much anxiety I was feeling, I could still hold myself and say, I'm here, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere, I'm here. That's literally all I would say to myself and that's what I guide. It's one of the things I often guide other people to do with themselves if it happens organically. And that's when we start to have a center to us. That's when we start to feel safe enough to little by little drop into our bodies, drop out of the head and into the heart and then hold ourselves in this place and start to live with the sense of, oh, maybe, maybe it's okay that I feel this way. Maybe I don't have to make excuses or try and hide how I feel from other people. Maybe I can ask for what I need. It becomes easier and easier to even identify what we need when we make it this practice of coming home to ourselves over and over, no matter what. So we become more able to identify what we need and what we want because most trauma survivors don't, We don't know what we need. We don't even know where to start or how to, we don't even know how to know what we need or want. Right. So this practice of gradually and consistently reconnecting with ourselves, no matter what, and it can be as simple. It doesn't need to be um, an elaborate shadow work journey. Although my practice, it seems like it, What I lead is less and less elaborate over time (laughs) that I do this work. But it doesn't need to be a shadow work journey per se. It can simply be hand on heart, deep breath when you're feeling the pain and say, I'm here. That's shadow work right there. And that's in a way the heart of everything.
0: I love that you brought up how hard it can be just to ask for what you want. And the thing before that is how do you know that you want it? How do you identify the thing that you actually want? I have found that to be harder. I know that for me, I've often said, well, if I knew what I want, well, then I could just map it out. And I would just move into producer mode and I would execute the thing and I would map out a plan. And that part's easy. I just have to know what the thing I want is. And I have to know that it's worth putting all my resources into it. There's this dropping in, right? Like you have to slow down and feel and listen. And if you if you're a meditator, great, but it's that spaciousness, like creating space. And my God, that's hard especially when I was just in go, go, go mode. And there's one more thing I wanted to say about that. And it's the word longing. And it was the day I realized that longing is something that I am choosing to celebrate now. And longing isn't this thing of like sadness or you know dangling the carrot of this desire that's out of my reach and so i'm sad about it because i can't have the thing and i'm longing for it longing now is is worthy of celebration because if i can name the thing that i long for then i know i can map out a path to have it
1: yes there's so much fascinating <laughs> stuff you just said that i can't wait to To dive into we lose connection with our needs and desires through trauma through emotional neglect because emotions are our compass emotions and body sensations are how we evolve to navigate reality to navigate the world and the thing is is that these signals are all in our body And when we experience trauma and we become dissociated, we become in our heads, we lose that compass. And so actually like it all goes together with being in our heads. And like you mentioned, go, go, go. That means that you're living from your head, right? When you drop in into stillness, that often means that you're coming home into your body. And so of course that would facilitate a deeper connection to your inner compass. So we evolved to, listen to our bodies for signals of what we naturally want to move towards or what we're moving away from, right? And so this natural somatic response is one thing that we become severed from in in a growing up of emotional neglect, because we learn not to trust our natural instincts about things which often have emotion involved, right? If I'm if my body is giving me the signal to move away from something, it means I'm probably afraid. My body is giving me a signal to move towards something. Well, there's that longing, right? There's that, it's really love, right? There's love. We want to move towards something and there's fear we want to move away from something. And so a huge part of the healing journey from my perspective is reconnecting somatically with that inner compass and that natural Assurance that that certainty that we are meant to have of what we want to move towards or away from.
0: I was reading a story that you published about your time as a professor, and you were looking for the good evaluations and putting on a real air of, I'm at the peak of my career, I got it all together you know, look at me succeed, and yet on the inside, you know, nothing short of a, you're the best teacher ever, you know, was ever going to be enough. If you got any critical feedback at all, it sounded like from this story that you published, you would spend time, you know, beating yourself up over that negative comment. And again, when I read that story, I felt all the times in my life where I've been so hard on myself, where I don't give myself a break. It's like, why am I supposed to be perfect? How how am I supposed to have all the answers? Like, we're just practicing being human here. When I talk to my parents about the things that I learn on my journey and the work that I'm doing and I ask if they'll, you know, sit with me and explore a topic or a theme or something I'm remembering, and they've been surprisingly open to this these last this last year especially. And in doing so, what I'm remembering are colloquialisms that come up that we you talked about generational upbringing and even generational trauma and folks that came up in the war, and how they had to learn how to deal with it. And then they're raising children, passing on some of those behaviors. And so there was a lot of scarcity mindset, colloquialisms that that showed up in my youth. And one of the ones that really sticks out for me that I've mentioned before is don't push your luck. As if there's some finite amount of goodness that can happen. I only get so much of the pie, you know, and how dare I ask for a second piece because that would be shameful. That would be greedy. And when I talked to my parents about this and where it came from and where they heard it, they started sharing with me some of the things they heard growing up. And for my mom, they were riddled in perfectionism. And so I see I see where the adversity to risk comes from. Because if you can't do something right, don't do something at all. And when I read that piece of your story, I felt all of that in my body. Like even right now, as I'm telling you, I can like I'm really tense through my solar plexus and I can feel my, my center vibrating like just sitting here talking to you about it.
1: I can feel it too. I I felt, um, I was able to physically feel how central that statement is in your being and how much impact that's had for you. Yeah. Yeah. I think that part of that's absolutely war mentality, survival mentality, um, Like that don't ask for too much, that's scarcity mindset. Another part I know about is that that is part of our ancestral heritage as people with Northern European roots. Um, I'm part Norwegian. My mother is half Norwegian. Her mother is 100% Norwegian. And there is a phrase in Norwegian that says something like, don't stick your neck out like don't be too big you don't like that was such a huge part of their culture growing up as norwegian and i know cuz i'm very familiar with german and germanic culture and there's a very similar mindset there like you don't want to stick out it's safest and best to just keep your head down, to conform, to be like everyone else. And then when I look at my husband's Mexican American family, or like my mother's partner is Cuban American, and I look at those cultures, it's so different. I mean, there are, depending on the family, right? It might be kind of similar, but the widespread cultural difference is that, like, yeah, be loud, express your feelings, go and hug people. Um, yeah, if you're angry, you yell. If you feel threatened, you fight back. Whereas I feel like in Northern European heritage, we have a freeze response in our nervous system that's passed down through many, many generations that like we don't get to have a sympathetic nervous system response. We don't get to express our feelings, um, get angry, protect ourselves, run away, fight back. We just have to freeze, keep our head down, keep our feelings underwater and just humbly go ahead with our
0: lives in this very small way. God, that feels like that explains so much. Like so much right there. Wow.
1: (laughs) I think it's really important to know that it's just not us right? This, the pain, the suffering that we carry is not ours alone to carry, but we tend to think that way because of our hyper individualistic culture. And so much of the healing world treats it that way. Right. And it's also American culture, this whole, this BS about your bootstraps, whatever, (laughs) whatever that myth is about, like, pull yourself up by our bootstraps, as if your culture and your inheritance and your family, your lineage make no impact, right, your financial um, background or your race, or like, as if none of that makes an impact on your ability to uh, make and earn and money and be successful, like, or to heal yourself. I mean, we are so interconnected with all of our ancestors and our inheritance in so many different ways that um, our ancestral wounding plays such a huge part that we need to look at because we're not alone in this and it's not all up to us. And it can be really, really impactful To listen to how you talk about things or listen to the phrases that come out of your mouth, especially when you're in the depths of a trigger response, or when you're really suffering about something, listen to yourself and how you talk, and there will be phrases that come out that are not yours. And this is, I got this from, it's called the core language approach in family constellations. Like it's, it's very powerful. It's been very impactful for me.
0: Wow. I love hearing about the ways in which you have learned to heal yourself and to create this wider perspective on where some of the trauma comes from. And I'd love to hear more about the way that you show up for others. Because it seems like you've been on this huge journey and you're showing up to offer your gifts to others. Tender Revolution is the name of your podcast. Do you want to tell my listeners why you started it?
1: I started tender revolution at the darkest, deepest time in my life when I was painfully aware of my own sensitivity and frankly, like the tenderness, the phenomenal tenderness of my own heart. So I started it in the middle of my postpartum journey, less than a year after my daughter was born. My daughter's 18 months now and it helped give voice to the magic that happened in that dark place. And part of that magic was the incredible closeness that I felt to myself in the depths of the anxiety um, and the insomnia that that time represented for me. And um, it allowed me to express with a kind of poetry, the pain, but also the great beauty that I was experiencing. Because what I realized is that my heart was cracking open after the birth of my daughter. And I knew, I came to know intimately through that experience that when our heart opens, it's sometimes not at all a pretty experience. That when our heart opens, what often needs to happen first is a great thawing of the frozen pain that we had to put away earlier in our life. And that's exactly what happened for me. Layer by layer, certainly, I mean, thank goodness, not all at once. I don't think I could have survived that, but certainly layer by layer, following the birth of my daughter, it was like wave after wave of this great, thawing of this pain and then that pain and then that pain. And I couldn't tell you exactly, oh, this pain relates to this part of my childhood or this, you know, it wasn't linear in any way as healing never is. Right. But um, so the podcast part of, especially the early episodes is expressing the beauty of that experience and realizing that that, made me feel absolutely alive, even in the darkest of places. And I wanna say, especially in the darkest of places, not that I ever wanna go back there, (laughs) but um, that really is, especially what those first, I wanna say four episodes of Tender Revolution represent, is the poetry and the beauty that was coming through me in the depths of my heart cracking open.
0: Wow. You said something about feeling yourself more in the pain that you felt closer to yourself while you were in that dark place. I'm really curious about that. How did you build that awareness muscle to feel close to yourself while you were in a dark place?
1: Honestly, I didn't feel like that was my choice to be close to myself in that dark place. And it didn't, it certainly did not happen at first. What happened was the universe, my higher self, or as I like to say, my ancient self or whoever it was, it felt like they were conspiring to bring me there. So that was actually that That radical closeness to myself was kind of the end point of that journey. But what happened many, many months in a row before that was me really pushing against that invitation with, my, with the full might of my mighty mind. <laughs> because I do have a mighty mind. I'm a former academic and a recovering intellectual. And what I was doing through my suffering that the insomnia and the pretty much nightly anxiety attacks postpartum brought on for me is I went into this relentless, desperate fix it mode with myself. And this was the first, this was my first attempt at approaching healing that ultimately didn't work. Right. But what I did with myself was night after night, I would just in desperation do the deepest, darkest, most hardcore shadow work on myself that I could muster. I would just drill into my, my pain, my childhood, try and get to the early memories that were the core instances of, the, of my present day experience. Cause that's part of what I do in shadow work um, is find the early memories that are the roots of our present day symptomology. So I was doing that relentlessly to myself and basically everything but surrendering. Because during the days, I was the primary caretaker to my daughter, regardless of whether I slept zero, one or two hours. And that was pretty much what it was like for me for over a year. So during the day, I was just in ragged survival mode. My nervous system was just uh, completely collapsed. And I was using every single tool. I had in my tool belt from two decades of mindfulness practice and yoga and some somatic experiencing study. Um, So nervous system repair work, I was doing that relentlessly to myself just to survive, just to be with my daughter during the day. And so of course I wanted to fix myself, right? So it's like the universe conspired to put this situation in front of me where I felt immense pressure to quote unquote, get over it. Where surrender just seemed like impossible. But ultimately, I just drove myself into the ground with these practices. And I I had so many nights where I was just thrashing. I was literally physically thrashing around in rage because nothing I did seemed to work. And it, it all seemed actually counterproductive. And so eventually I surrendered. And I say that as if it was a uh, easy, (laughs) easy, simple approach to just surrender, right? But it took a lot took many, many months of banging my head against the wall to just say, you know, what if I could love myself, no matter what kind of a parent I was during the day? What if I could love myself, regardless of how much sleep I got? What if I could love myself? If I was this way forever? And that's the place that I had to get to, to survive. And I can say with so much gratitude to myself that I got there, that I felt pretty much forced into that place. Thank goodness. And when I really arrived in that place of genuinely loving myself, no matter what, as if I would be this way forever, as if my life would be like this for the rest of my days, that's when things started to shift for me. And that's the place where I felt radically close to myself, is just holding myself. I would literally, night after night, just hold my own heart and breathe, no matter what was coming up or coming through me, and just say yes to it. Just bring a whole body yes to all of my experience, no matter how painful. And the reverberation of that, yes, just night after night, day after day. I felt like I was being the parent to myself that I never had and the parent that I was desiring to be to my daughter and that I knew I needed to be. And so that's what I mean by being radically close to myself in that place of suffering
0: this notion of loving yourself more. I shouldn't be surprised by now how often that's the punctuated sentence at the end of a struggle, that if only we could love ourselves more, things would be different. If only we could love ourselves more. Why do you think it's so hard and we It feels like we have to decondition ourselves from our upbringing, that somehow there's something wrong with thinking we're okay, that it's more normal to find the problems of how we're not measuring up. That's easier than saying we're doing a good job and we're doing the best we can and this journey to love ourselves more feels like the point, like the work. It is
1: the work. And and you're absolutely right. We, we do have to really decondition ourselves. I think that there are two layers to why that is. I think that the human brain has a negativity bias and that's just how we evolve. I learned this, way back when when i started my mindfulness studies that our brain actually it's much easier for us to identify and focus on potential threats what's wrong what might go wrong you know tomorrow the tiger coming around the corner because it's been adaptive for us as a species over time. So there's that evolutionary biological reality that we have a negativity bias. And of course, we reflect that back to ourselves as well as to the external world. And the other layer to it, in my experience and opinion, is that most of us, the overwhelming majority of us, especially if you're raised as female, have deep deep shame. Shame meaning I'm not good enough as I am. And I believe that the root of that shame is emotional neglect for most of us. I believe that humanity is just coming out of an emotional dark age that we've been in for, I don't even know how long, but a really long time. And we just haven't known what to do with human emotions. We've repressed them. We've treated them as somehow trivial or secondary aspects of human experience when in fact our emotions are just emotion, energy in motion, their life force energy moving through us. And so when our parents, because of course like our parents aren't bad people, our parents just learned how to be human from their parents, right? Many of their parents, were alive during wartime and they could not feel emotion or you know, they couldn't just go and be authentic and cry and hug each other when they were sad or grieving all the time. They had to toughen up and get through the war. And so a lot of us had parents who grew up in these eras. And so we grew up in ways where we didn't feel like we had permission or we were outwardly punished for sharing the full extent of our authentic expression, particularly emotions that are inconvenient. And I know as a toddler mom, that the emotions of children are really hard to deal with sometimes. So imagine if you were raised That like crying is a bad thing or that you need to get over it if you're crying or that you certainly can't cry in public and that's shameful, right? Imagine if you were raised this way, how could you possibly show up for your children in a way that's so soft and emotionally validating and emotionally intelligent, which often as an emotionally intelligent parent means that we just sit with our kids as they're feeling their feelings, even if it's in public, and we validate them like, this is really sad. You're really sad right now. Like, who knows how to do that? <laughs> our, our parents didn't know how to do that. So this is one of the reasons that we live in an emotional dark age now and that we feel deep shame because the reality is that when our emotions aren't validated, We were raised in this environment of emotional gaslighting, and I'm not saying that our parents did this intentionally at all. But what I mean is that if you don't know what to to do with your child's emotions, you're not going to talk about them. You're going to kind of pretend like they don't exist or they're bad, and that's a form of gaslighting. And so what happens is the child learns that there's something wrong with them for feeling as intensely as they do. And so that's the root of shame for many of us is we have shame about our vital life force energy. We have shame feeling like we're there's just something about us that isn't good enough. I believe the root of that is often emotional neglect, that our emotions just weren't seen, heard, understood. And thus we don't feel seen. We don't feel heard. We don't feel understood. And so we
0: think there's something wrong with us. I love your slow and steady explanation. Like I'm having all the resonance in my body. I can feel myself just being like, yes, Catherine, yes. I remember, I remember what that was like to feel so misunderstood and to have my expressions be not wanted, And then I think, oh, it's wrong to express like that. Anyone who knows me, if you really knew me, you'd know that uh, I'm a big fan of the three breath hug. And if we just met and I had your consent, I I would want to embrace you so that we could have three whole breaths together. And feel that sink, feel that oxytocin release and that serotonin boost and get the dopamine kick.
1: That's really, really scary for a lot of people. I mean, that's really, it's scary because it requires us to suddenly be seen, heard, literally felt as we are and embraced as we are. And I think most of us because we grew up in this environment of emotional neglect, most of us have braced our whole lives against needing that. I've had to really be intentional about accepting love even from my own intimate family, like my husband, my child, my daughter is the kind of person, sounds like similar to you who just hugs everyone like we're, we're working on hugging trees right now and she'll just go to every single tree and bush in our entire yard and just hug. And I'll be just like, do you think that bush needs a hug? You think, oh, that tree over there, that tree really needs a hug. I ask her how the tree feels and she responds. I ask, you know, so she just, she's totally this force of love. And there's part of me that's really afraid of that. And that's that guard, that's the aspect of me, that's this guard at the door to my heart. And he or she or whatever it is, is can soften, but it just takes, it takes a little bit for me. And so part of my practice is to have so much patience with that, with myself, because I want to be the person that accepts your three breath hug right away,
0: <laughs> you know? People talk about introverts and empaths and folks that might shy away from a lot of external stimulation because of how much they feel energies from others. And I think you've got your own phrase for those types of people.
1: Yeah. I mean, I use the word sensitives and empaths kind of interchangeably because empaths I've realized from talking to people, older folks, kind of like my age and older, tend to relate to the word empaths, but the younger generations are shying away from that term. And like sensitive, like being a sensitive, um, is the word that a lot of younger people are using. Just meaning someone who, yeah, has a heightened awareness of the energy and emotions of others. Whereas empath definitely has this connotation of you take on and you can't differentiate often um, your own feelings from those of others.
0: Mm. Um, And you're designing programs specifically for um, this population. Is that true?
1: Yes. So the people I work with identify as sensitives or empaths. We are the sensitive ones who grew up in situations of emotional neglect And so we have all this adult symptomology and these deep layers of shame. And we feel really terrified of conflict because we were raised in a way where it wasn't okay to express our full range of authentic feeling, especially feelings that are inconvenient like anger or deep sadness because we were raised in environments where we couldn't often say no, we couldn't have opinions that were just our own and we couldn't behave in ways that, where we we could take care of our own interests or like act like we deserve the abundance of the world. Like this is something that a lot of us have in common, but yet we are these sensitive souls. And we know that we're here to be change makers in the world. Like we know that we're here to make a difference We know that we're here to help the heart of humanity because we're deeply compassionate. And we know that, (laughs) so this is why I am so passionate about working with this population, of which I am a member, (laughs) is that our world needs to change. Our world needs to be more compassionate and empathic, right? And if we want a future that's more compassionate, Those of us who are deeply compassionate have to mobilize. We have to learn how to unfreeze our nervous systems and take action in the world. And that's why it's so important for us to learn about healing ourselves.
0: And that is why it's so important for you to help share these tools with other empaths AKA mobilizing empaths. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, one person at a time. Yes. The more people that can wake up to their own healing power, their own healing magic, the more people that there are healed in the world and can be making decisions about how they show up and how they treat each other and how they treat the planet.
1: Yeah. I think that A big example of this that's especially come out of the shadows in the last year is anti-racism and a lot of deeply compassionate white people feel so much pull to show up as anti-racist, but they're terrified and paralyzed to do it because they don't have the resilience in their nervous system that, would allow them to show up in a conflict situation with confidence. Yeah. And it's because they were taught to doubt themselves through emotional neglect in their early life. And in order to show up as anti-racist for these conflicts that will inevitably arise, you have to be solid in yourself. You have to have a solid sense of confidence and that you're doing the right thing And you can't take on the emotions of others, right? You have to differentiate, this is mine and this is important. And this is like, this anti-racism is essential to humanity's future. You can't be swayed. You can't retreat into fragility and not show up. Like, so we feel this pull to take action in the world and yet we're paralyzed so often. So it's a huge passion of mine to help deeply sensitive and empathic people feel confident more and more about holding themselves no matter what, right? Showing up even when you're scared and sometimes especially when you're scared and how we can do that in a way that's trauma informed and also highly mobilized, right? So how can we take care of ourselves and not push ourselves too much, and also show up to change the world. Yeah. And this is a fine line that, in my own life, I'm always experimenting with and that I love to help others find for themselves because there is a sweet spot where we're not doing violence to ourselves by, like, forcing ourselves to, for example, show up to a protest when you just really, really don't feel safe in that kind of environment, right? I don't want anybody to push themselves. That's not trauma-informed. And at the same time, I'm interested in helping people find ways to show up boldly where they can be proud of what they're doing and confident and like take action and be big while still feeling safe enough to hold themselves through it and stay within their window of tolerance,
0: right? I'm hearing you talk about how hard it can be for white identified people to show up the way that they want to as allies in the anti-racism movement when we know we're going to screw up. We know that our white privilege is going to get in the way because we don't even know the extent to which we have white privilege. We know it exists, we know we have it. but because we haven't lived as a as a member of the bipoc community, we don't it's hard to see all the ways in which we've been advantaged. I'm in a group of AR leaders um, that have self-formed to self-educate, And we did like a four-month exploration, and then we created a six-month program. And I'm in it with 12 people, most of us from the Pacific Northwest. And we're assigning text. We're doing group work together in Zoom for a couple of hours every week. And we have a partner that we're doing some of the homework exercises with so that we can Create a supportive space to be uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and to practice with each other because we want to create spaces that are more welcoming. We want to create spaces that are more inclusive. And I don't know how to show up and do that with all of the right sensitivities without practice.
1: The book that really was a game changer for me in my anti-racist studies and the the inner shadow work of my own, like anti-racism in myself, was Resma Menakem's My Grandmother's
0: Hands. We're using that, yeah. That definitely seems to be um, one of the foundational Bibles of this work right now.
1: So we were talking about how trauma is unseen pain And a huge part of what's happening now from my perspective and understanding is that the pain of black indigenous and other people of color and especially black Americans is now being witnessed more and more by white people. And this is going to take a long time. You know, it's in the sixties, many people were convinced that that was the movement (laughs) and discrimination, and it's just going to take a long time because these are deep, deep roots, deep, deep roots in the human yeah. psyche.
0: Um, Leslie Breiner, one of my last guests, uh, who does a lot of trauma work, described these four layers of trauma, individual trauma, generational trauma, systemic trauma, and historical trauma. And when she described systemic trauma, she used the example of George Floyd's murder. And she said, yes, it's traumatic that this man's life was ended in the way that it was. But systemic trauma is the situation that allowed it to happen in the first place. And that's where the feeling of hopelessness comes in is that there's a system in place that allowed that to take place that allowed that to happen. And that is the crushing part of systemic trauma.
1: Yeah. It feels hopeless because it's so much bigger than us. Yes. And we are interconnected with everyone else. And that's one thing we need to realize is that everything we do reflects outward, no matter how small it may seem. And another thing we need to realize is that change happens very gradually. And we just need to have patience. We need to show up boldly and have a whole lot of patience at the same time.
0: Yeah. Would you like to give us the top notes of what your program is about that launches on March 22nd?
1: Yes. So I created Becoming Bold because I want to empower as many sensitives and empaths as possible to be the person that they're proud to be in the world, to be the future ancestor that they're going to be proud to have their descendants talking about. In other words, I want the deeply compassionate people of the world to be future leaders. I want us to be the decision makers, to be the people who show up and make the shifts that our society and our planet need. At the heart of the program is really deep shadow work and specifically the work we do to identify our resistance to showing up in big ways To hold that with so much love and to learn how to flow in our lives and show up and act alongside that resistance, alongside the fear, instead of in spite of it, because what we resist persists, as Carl Jung said... And so we often stay stuck or stay small because we resist our own resistance. In other words, like because we don't want to feel afraid of what we're afraid of. We're feeling shame about how it's hard for us to show up in big ways or even slightly big ways or to set the boundary that we need to set. We feel shame that... This is hard for us. And so that's what keeps us small is our resistance to the resistance itself. So at the heart of the Becoming Bold program is learning a mastery of how to flow alongside your own resistance in your life so that you're free to show up as the person you want to be and that your sense of self expands to hold it all So that it's not that you don't feel the fear anymore. It's that yourself has become more expansive so that you can move forward while holding the fear. It's almost like you develop, and this is part of the program too, we develop an inner parent that can hold us in a big way so that that part of us that's resisting is actually quite small. And so just like a parent could pick up a child and then move forward, we can do that with the parts of ourselves that are afraid and lovingly without bypassing in any way, lovingly and validating all the way, just holding those aspects of us as we show up as the person we
0: really want to be. And if I wanted to sign up for the course, how would I do that?
1: You could just go to katherineliggettcom Liggett.com forward
0: slash becoming bold. And I'll put a link in the show notes for anyone who wants to explore that. Thank you for sharing so much of yourself today, your honesty and your big heart. Thank you so much, Sherry. Wow, you still with me? I'm processing. I'm really struck by this concept of reparenting our inner child, the one who walks around unknowingly wounded. What I get is that We have to see that child as they were in their suffering. Until we can provide that child with belated empathy for their unvalidated emotions, there will be a block to our becoming bold. This is why I found myself saying yes to Catherine's course. I had no idea I needed to do that until she reflected back to me after our call, that it's this type of trauma that keeps us stuck from living the life we know we're here to live. And these generational traumas must be healed, as author Resma says in his book, through the body. Our body is the vehicle, and to do this, we must pause to consider the bodies of our ancestors. And if you're lucky enough to have elder living relatives See if there's an opportunity to lean into your own curiosity about what shape of trauma might still live in their body. It could be a clue for what's inside you. If you decide to join me in becoming bold, I'll see you on the 22nd. Until then, keep mining and shining the gold within.